everyone. Welcome to another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, my friend, my good buddy, Alex Lichenauer of the band Control Top and of Get Better Records. More on that in one second, but first... You can head over to the email address, Turn Out a Punk Podcast, or the Facebook page, if you use Facebook page, Turn Out a Punk, and send an email or a message, and those messages go to my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, and an occasional guest booker, but this is one of my bookings, so, uh, but thank you, Tristan, for all you do for this show, as always. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on various forms of social media, at Left for Damien. If you'd like to support the show... The best way of supporting the show is just by telling all your friends, letting everyone know that you enjoy this thing that we do here. You can also rate it and write a review for it on your platform of listening to a method of choice. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to do that. Just tell your friends. Just tell everyone you know about this thing. Speaking of support, this thing would not be possible without the kind, loving support of my friends over there at Vans and House of Vans, who right now are... You know, they've got, they got, uh, they got sh- friends of the show, culture abuse running all over the world doing shows right now. And they just came on board this podcast a couple of years ago and said, do what you do. We just want you not to have to pay for it out of your own pocket anymore, which was great because, you know, as much as I love doing this thing, it gets a little expensive sometimes. So thank you so much to the fine folks at Vans for coming on board and, and doing that, you know, and, and, and bringing me to all these fun places as well. So, so Thanks. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show, my friend Alex from the band Control Top and the label Get Better Records. Alex is someone I've been friends with for a couple years on social media, and they're someone I've wanted to have on the show for a very long time. And we've tried. Like, Alex even came over to my house, and we just ended up talking and didn't end up recording an episode or anything like that. So to finally get this opportunity to sit down with them and actually do this, it's been a, a long time coming. And I'm glad I finally got a part one because... Not only am I a huge fan of Alex's band Control Top, I think Get Better Records is such a phenomenal label and has done such an amazing job about making itself into a presence on the landscape of punk rock and, and independent music. And it's a label that has, I don't know, such a positive motivation behind it. We'll get into all that in a second. But I just wanted to apologize to Alex that this took so long and apologize to you that the reception's a, yeah, a little less than perfect and the rain... You know, but that's the ambiance. So anyway, I'm not going to blabber anymore. Here's Alex Lichtenhauer on Turned Out a Punk. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, I am very, very apologetic that it has taken this long because I've wanted to talk to you. Well, we've, you've come over to my house. Like, yeah. we've been talking about this happening for a long time now, but as I was just explaining to you off air, uh, sometimes people get the full Damien kind of hectic scramble brain experience and it takes a lot longer than I would have hoped. So I apologize on the public record now. <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm just stoked to be here. Awesome. Well, we're going to get to the uh, present day and we're going to talk about, you know, everything, but we got to start this off the way that we start them all off around turn it a punk, which is Alex, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yeah, so uh, growing up, I would go to the uh, JCC in Baltimore, where I'm from, and um, I played hockey with this person who I just like became good friends with, and then his friend's older brother 
um, gave us like my friend group like this like no effects CD and like <laughs> it just like blew me away. I had like never heard of anything like that before. Um, and like ever since then, I just like kind of stopped listening to the other stuff I was listening to and just like got more into punk. You know, I was into the fat record stuff in the beginning for a very long time, but. Yeah, that's kind of how it started for me. So I was listening to a lot of like, um, you know, Rancid, No Effects, and then I got really into ska for a while, and then um, yeah, just like slowly developed my taste. Um, and then it was kind of around that same time when I started a band with um, some friends, and then I started to just really just be listening to more of my my friends' bands, and I think that's what really got me more into punk was like realizing that like my friends were doing all the same stuff, and then. I kind of, yeah, just like through being involved with, you know, because I've always wanted to be a musician since like the time I was like, you know, a little kid, like hitting on like my mom's like pots and pans in the kitchen. Um, I knew I wanted to play music. So then like, just like from my, my brother's, sorry, from my friend's like older brother, we just kind of like got into the, the music scene in Baltimore and just was hearing about like all the more like local stuff. And that's when I was like, even more interested than ever. What was the no effects CD? The first one that you got, do you remember? Um, the one that was being passed around. It was probably ribbed. Yeah. That's a good one to start with. It's a really good one. Yeah. Like I, I kind of go back to that one as being my favorite no effects record push come to, to shove, I guess. Yeah. I think like between that and then the, and the, the decline are like the best ones. You're right. Decline that, that, that is the, my number one. I forget the ribs. Number two. After yeah. Decline. Um, yeah, someone someone just yesterday was like, "What's the best? What's your favorite song that's the longest?" And I was like, "The Decline." It's oh, like the absolutely. best song, and it's like twenty minutes long. Absolutely, I think that like to me that almost ends the epithet, like you know, like that's the apex of the genre. Oh yeah, and then it's and then it's uh you know a, a decline, right? <laughs> Truly. <laughs> um. So where did you kind of what was the, do you remember the first show you ever went to? Um. Yeah, I had, I had kind of, like, a funny, like, upbringing. Like, I was never, I mean, I was, like, as, like, a little kid, I was, like, really into, like, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and stuff. But, like, my parents never took us to, like, concerts. I've never had, like, my first, like, Green Day was my first concert. I think, honestly, like, the first, first time I think I ever saw a live band play was at, like, like a bar mitzvah. And then, like, and then, like, my first show I ever played was at my best friend's bar mitzvah. Like, we had played it. And then, I think the first actual show I ever went to was like at the, it was called the, the Pikesville teen center. It was like a suburb of Baltimore. Okay. And it was just like this like teen center underneath the staples. And it was just like local high school bands that were playing. Um, and that was like the first scene I was involved in was like this. Um, uh, yeah. Like this like Pikesville teen center. Was there like a big Baltimore local like ska or like kind of skate punk band? I'm trying to remember. Uh, not that ever like broke through, like, I mean, there was like the big local ones, but I don't think there was ever like the like, big, like Baltimore national punk band. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I can think of. Um, but yeah, I think like my, my, my friend's older brother was in like the bigger bands in the area. Um, but that was kind of it. It's funny because, like, you know, later on, I, you know, Baltimore would have, you know, obviously a huge scene and at one point kind of like take over seemingly the underground scene with like a lot of the bands becoming like, you know, big national bands. But yeah, like thinking back to it, it's like it's hard to think of 
Baltimore, like big, there was like a Baltimore skinhead scene, I think, always scene, but I can't really think of too many Baltimore bands. Yeah, I feel like the bigger bands that kind of came out of Baltimore were like uh, Ruiner, Pulling Teeth. Like I like the more like hardcore bands that came out of there. Yeah, yeah, a little later um, on, I guess, right? Right, right. Because I'm I'm 29 right now, so I was I was more active in like in that scene when I was like 16 and 17. Mm-hmm. Um, so like those are like the bigger bands of the time, and then I kind of like kind of lost touch from like Baltimore for a while. What were some of the bands that you remember locally that like spoke to you? Like, you know, didn't have to become national bands, but just some of your favorite early bands you got to see. Um, I think like the punkest band I ever saw was my friend's band cult classics. Mm -hmm. Um, I just like, they were like the band that was like fast, aggressive, political. Um, I just remember like being in high school with now one of my best friends, Patrick, he would like, I would like kind of see him in the hallway. He was like a really tall dude with like army boots and like, like a like Liberty Spikes, and I was like terrified of him. <laughs> and now we're like best friends, like you know, fifteen years later. And I just was like, damn, this person is like the coolest person I've ever seen in my life. And I just like loved his band. And then like, so yeah, Cole Classics. Um, I think um, there was this band called um, Ramrod, which was more of like a a no effects style band. Um, pretty short lived. Um, those are like the two big ones for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like, I liked pulling teeth and ruiner at the time, but now I really not into that. Um, yeah, there were a lot of like local bands. I'm probably forgetting the name of that, that I really liked. Mm-hmm. And so where did you kind of go? What where were you buying records at that time too? Or music? Was it like just at local stores or? Yeah. Um, maybe this is a little later, but celebrated summer in Baltimore had opened up and that's like, that was a huge influence on me, but also like reptilian records. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't actually really buying that many records back then. Um, I think I, I would probably honestly just buy them at shows as opposed to stores. Mm-hmm. Um, just cause like it was just harder for me to get around and like going to shows was like when I was able to buy stuff. Celebrated summer is like one of the best stores in America, I think for records. Oh, true. Yeah. Tony's amazing. Yeah. Tony's I think, amazing. Like, this is, I think this is like his 13th year or something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so crazy. The vibe of that place is super cool. Um, yeah. I've yeah yet everyone actually, should go check it out. Yeah. I've yet to actually be able to go into the store, but I mean, <laughs> viewing it from Instagram, <laughs> I yeah. love it. And I've known Tony forever too. So yeah. And he's like always going to Japan and like getting like really awesome old, old and new, like, like Japanese punk records. Yeah. It makes me really jealous that I like, I want to own a record store just for the Japanese buying trips. Oh yeah. He's there like at least like once a year, I want to say. Oh, that's the dream. That's the dream. I know. <laughs> so where did you kind of go from this local scene? Like you say, you fell out of the Baltimore scene pretty quickly thereafter. Where'd you kind of go as far as music tastes and everything at that point? Well, well kind of what happened was, is what, actually what really shaped who I am today was one of, one of like all of our close friends. Have you ever heard of Charm City Art Space? Yeah. Okay, so Charm City Art Space, I became a member of this like collective called Charm City Art Space, which was in Baltimore. And then this person who like booked most of the shows there was like one of my close friends. I was in bands with him. He ended up getting called out for like multiple accounts of sexual assault. And this is like two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. So it's like a pretty new thing to be like called out for these things, like publicly. Mm-hmm. Um and I had just moved to New Hampshire at that time for my undergrad, but 
um, that kind of like destroyed the Baltimore punk scene for many, many years because most people at the time, because none of us really had like the knowledge, the um, vocabulary and just like the experience dealing with this, like no one, no one really knew what to do. And most people took his side as opposed to the survivor side. Mm. And like a lot of people just like moved out of Baltimore. Everyone hated each other. Um, and then I, so I was in New Hampshire at the time. Um, so I was kind of like detached from it, but ever since then, I just like kind of like have had like weird vibes about Baltimore, even though it's pretty different now. Um, it kind of like tainted all the people that lived there for me. Um, but yeah, so I moved to New Hampshire to start school and I, I lived in a small town called Keene, which is like right at the border of Brattleboro, Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there wasn't really that big of a scene there. So me and my friends kind of started one, um, and that's and that's when Get Better also started was yeah in two thousand two thousand and nine, I I was just like, you know, no one was really doing anything up there. No one would, no one would, would really tour up there either because it was like so far out of the way. Mm-hmm. So we kind of like start fresh and like figure out like what to do. What was it like when you got there? Were there any local bands? Like, was there any sort of local scene happening, or was it like legitimately just starting from scratch type thing? Uh, I think it wasn't starting from scratch like musically but like punk wise it kind of was yeah um there's maybe like one kind of punk band that was there um but also what had just happened was an art space had just opened up called the starving artists um and that was like a a community space like venue where we have all of our shows okay um so i became acquainted with the owner um and that's like where all the first like shows I booked were there and like also like I we had house shows at our house um but it was kind of like me and my like roommates at the time who were like kind of doing most of the punk stuff there and did you and your roommates move up there together or were these just kind of like you know the coalition of the willing that had gone to school there and decided to do this no we 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 actually like met on like a I want to say it was like it couldn't have been MySpace. I guess it was like a Facebook group of our college. And we we're like, you're in a punk. I'm in a punk. Let's live together. <laughs> so we like requested our dorm being together, having never met each other before. Um, and we just like, the three of us just like shared a dorm room um, and kind of like started like figuring out what to do. Um, but they were both from New Hampshire. So they had more of like, they knew a lot more people than I did. So they, they really helped like get it started too. It's awesome too when something like that works out, you know, because obviously, as illustrated by, you know, your previous experience in Baltimore, not everyone involved in punk by a, a long shot is cool. But when it does, oh, no. when it does work out like that, where you do wind up meeting all these people, it's like, hey, we're all in the same music and we're all cool. Let's do right. something. <laughs> I know it's like at the, at that time it was like kind of rare because like, um, yeah, people just like didn't weren't the same as they are now. Like more. Um, like you know everyone's like way i feel like way better adapted now to mm-hmm. like knowing what to do mm-hmm. it, it feels like punk experiences things you know like five years ahead of society in a lot of ways you know and like, oh yeah and uh yeah like it just like a lot of the stuff you're describing a lot of people having to go through these things you know it, it, it was in punk first that this kind of happened right yeah, like I would, I would love to talk to the people ten years ago who handled that situation so bad in Baltimore and be like, "How do you feel about this now?" Mm-hmm. Ten years later, almost. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure. I'm. I'm. Ho- hopefully, they'd all have a very different, you know, response now than they did back then. But yeah, that was like you know, 
10 years ago, no, no one ever heard about call outs and all that stuff. And yeah, like through like punk, we like were able to like, you know, try and figure it out ourselves. Yeah. And it was, and it's almost like 10 years ago is the turning point. Yeah. Um, now yeah. In, in punk, I mean, no, totally. Uh, so once you kind of like what we're actually like, cause I mean to ask you this, cause you know, being a record nerd person, um, get better records. It's all, the only catalog numbers listed on Discog started at 18. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I'm su- honestly surprised they even go down that low. Well, they don't Whereas, like there's those are, it's spotty until, you know, oh. kind of like the, uh, I would say it's, it's spotty right up until like 2018. Yeah. So I think, so get better. This is our 10th year. Um, and I think for the first eight years, no one knew who we were. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of just like, cause you know, I, cause I, when I started the label in New Hampshire, I was just like putting out, um, like my friends bands who like mostly like weren't even good. You know, I was just like, <laughs> Oh, like I'm going to, I'm going to burn your CD and print off computer paper with my logo on the back of it, you know? Yeah. And like I carried everything around in a suitcase to all the shows and like tried to sell it, but you know, no one would really buy it. But, um, so yeah, it was like eight years of like, yeah. So I think a lot of those earlier catalog numbers are just like, I'm honestly even like, I like thought about wanting to just like start over the catalog number, but I'm just like, no, I can't like erase history. I have to just like keep going. But, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like, yeah. We could have like a crisis on infinite earths type giant comic book crossover and just, you know, do a redux of your, and start your numbers over again. Just acknowledge it. Yeah. Yeah. But now, now that we like hit past a hundred, I'm just like, that's kind of cool that we made it past a hundred. I don't want to like have to restart, you know? Oh yeah. And like from such humble beginnings, you know, now it's like get better records is legitimately one of the biggest punk labels, independent punk labels in America, you know? And when you, when you think about like, you know, you're well over a hundred releases, how many labels can boast about that? True. True. Yeah. And it's funny, like maybe like a few months ago, I like posted somewhere. I was like, Oh, like I used to have this suitcase and then someone, cause I lived in South Carolina for a while too. And someone was like, Oh yeah, I kept this for you in case one day you'd ever want it back. And he just like, <laughs> he just like mailed it to me in exchange for like a bunch of records that I sent him. And now I just like have the original, like get better records suitcase, just like in my living room, <laughs> the original distribution system. Yeah. Yeah. Like literally one suitcase I got at a thrift store, like, 10 years ago. Uh, so what was the early kind of scene like that you were, you know, that get better records kind of developed in? Like, what were some of these bands sounds like? What was, you know, like the New Hampshire stuff like at this point? Um, well, I was really into like folk punk at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so my, the other bands that I was in at the time were like folky poppy stuff. Um, but New Hampshire, you know, New Hampshire to me feels so isolated. Like a lot of people that I had met, from New Hampshire, like people would, like just stay there. And like one of my roommates, he was like 18 years old and had never been to Vermont before, which is like an hour and a half away. So like, I feel so isolated that there's the sound of it was pretty like outdated. It was just like, just like rock, like just <laughs> like bad, just like bad, like basic generic rock. Yeah. Um, and I was just like, okay, well you're my friend and I want to like get this label going I'm just going like, to do your CD or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was kind of just like pretty folky, I would say. Um, not too much like fast punk until like a few years later, like when my other friends started a band. But um, I mean, honestly, it was kind of boring. 
what do you kind of consider the first record that you really liked that you put out? Was like, is it the button up seven inch? Because is that the first vinyl thing you did too? Ooh, so the first record, I I can't remember if that was the that was definitely the first seven inch, but the first LP was for my band. We were called Young Mountain, um, and the way I, I was able to afford it because like I didn't really have a job at the time was I I screen printed a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I had one of my friends who was like in the club, one, some club at school. I had them hire me, pay me like a thousand dollars to print like, <laughs> to print like, I don't know, maybe like 50 shirts or something. Yeah. And like, you know, it, it should have cost like, you know, a hundred, two hundred dollars tops. But like, I was like, yeah, just like pay me a thousand dollars and I'll <laughs> print these terrible shirts for you. And they're like, okay, sure. Cool. The school has like you know tons of money. They yeah. didn't oh, even of like no giant academic institution, right? And like so that's how we that's how like we funded our first release. Um, but yeah, I think that record kind of sucked. But yeah, I really liked at the time the button up seven inch a lot. Um, but well, yeah, I haven't thought about that in so long. That's funny. So like yeah, what were your label inspirations? Like what label were you kind of looking at? Being like, I want to do something like that, or is it? Did you want to do something completely different? So, yeah, so for a while, you know, Planet X Records? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, since then, there's been a lot of stuff about them. But, like, uh, Planet X was, like, I think my number one influence um, for starting a label. It was, like, everything was, like, cheap. It was, like, $5 or less. It was, like, affordable. Um, and that's, like, what I really liked about it was making, like, the music accessible. Um, and so they were a huge influence. And then... Later on, it was like No Idea was like an influence, um, even Epitaph in some ways, just because like it was like an artist-owned label, and like mm-hmm. there aren't really that many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly just you know like business people, just like oh, I like music, I'm gonna start a business. Um, so I, I I wanted to start like a very artist-friendly label, um, and in the beginning of the label, I hadn't really come out as being like non-binary or queer, and so I wasn't just because I didn't really have like the vocabulary for like my feelings. And then once I started kind of having those feelings, the label really shifted into what it is now, which is like, you know, for women, for queers, for trans people, um, for more marginalized people. Um, I think that's when we really started to like release stuff that I really cared about. Mm -hmm. So what, what era is this, that is the, you know, the transition point for the label happens, do you think? I would say that was, um, like four years ago. Okay. And I think, I think the first record we did that I was like, okay, this is what get better is going to be like from now on was, uh, the hears and people watching seven inch. Um, and people watching is like two people from gloss and like other, when they still lived in Boston. Um, and that was like the first seven inch that like got people to like kind of see us and like know what we're about. But then the first LP was, uh, the hears LP, which came out, really only two years ago because it had like large and graces on it. Shirley Manson was on it. Martine from limp wrist was on it. Um, it had like a lot of people that were on it and it kind of like brought a lot of attention to us. Mm-hmm. That was like the first LP where I was like, this is something like I'm really proud of. And like, this is going to be like a turning point for the label. And so like how we interact with artists, how we interact with each other and like what we're all about. Yeah. Like it's such a cool label that, you know, obviously just outside of the sonics but the fact that you does have such a um a specific kind of mandate as a label yeah 
is that mandate as important as the music you put out or is it the music you put out first and the mandate is just a part of that as well? Uh, I think, I think the mandate is first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, like some stuff that I release, I'm like this, no one's going to like care about this too much, but like, they're my friends. They're people I want to like help out. Um, I mean, I, I like everything we've done, but I'm like, I'm not expecting to like, you know, make, sell a ton of copies off this. So like we'll press like 50 tapes or something. And like that to me is more important than like, just like releasing some music that I really like. And I know it's going to sell well. Um, I obviously have to think about the business side too of it, you mm-hmm. know, but for me, it's more, our politics are more important than, um, they, they come first always. Mm-hmm. I guess going back to your own musical journey, like, so when you, you know, when you started playing in that very first band, what was the vibe of that band that played that bar mitzvah? <laughs> we played a White Stripes cover and we played a Ramon song. And, <laughs> and, and that was it. And we played Wild Thing. Those are all classics, you know, no, no embarrassing yeah. songs there. Oh yeah. It's on, it's on like a VHS tape somewhere in my parents' basement. <laughs> I like really need to dig that up. <laughs> That could be a limited of 50 tape. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It has to be limited. Yeah. <laughs> did that band have a name? Uh, oh, yes, we did. We were called the Scannerkists. The Scannerkists? Yeah. With uh, S-K-A capitalized. <laughs> Was it going to be a ska band, too? Oh, yeah. We, like, one of, like, our first, like, big show was with uh, Streetlight Manifesto. And then, before I even had heard of Avail, we played with Avail. Whoa. When I was like 16, my mom like took me out of school early, like 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 let me leave school early to like like go play the show with a veil who I'd never heard their music before. That's awesome. Where was that show? That was at the Auto Bar in Baltimore. How did you get the gig then? Like just like was your band so, out of a tape at this point? Uh, we if we had a CD, that CD would only have hurt hurt us than would have gotten us anywhere. <laughs> um, but my bass player's older brother, the one who got us into punk, his band was supposed to play that show. And then they had to drop off for some reason. And they're like, Oh, do you want to play? It was like, it was like a veil pink razors from Richmond who I love. And then us. Yeah. What a show it was. Oh, and the draft and the draft. That's all. What? That's an insane, like, is that, so had you been playing to like, that would have been pretty packed. I would have imagined. No. Oh yeah. It probably sold out. It's like, you know, a veil like never plays. Yeah. And this was like, this was, what 13 years ago um and yeah i'll never forget i like had the flyer and i photoshopped our name on it just so i could print it off and put it on my wall as a kid <laughs> like after i realized how awesome all those bands were i was like oh like i want to be on that flyer <laughs> that's um, awesome yeah 16 year old me but yeah that show was also like a turning point because i was like whoa like these bands are fucking awesome these people are really cool like this is like really what I want to be doing is like playing music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was uh, like, so what, where did that, sorry, what happened after that band? Like where did that band go? Uh, I, I stayed back in Baltimore and the two other people like moved to new England to like start school. Um, but I, I then went to community college in Baltimore and started this other band called cringe. Um, and the singer of that band's the one who got caught out with the terms of yard space stuff. But like we, we toured a bunch and then a year later, I moved to New Hampshire um, and started my other bands that were up there. Um, and then from there, I joined this band called Rubrics, mm-hmm. and I moved to Greenville, South Carolina to just like be in that band full time because we would tour a lot. Um, yeah, and I was there for like 
three years or something. And that was more of like a, a propaganda 15 sounding band. Um, cause at this point I'd really gotten into 15 and probably like more of like, more like very political punk at that time. Yeah. I got to hear this band. Like the, the covers you do on that lathe covers thing looks incredible. A pinhead gunpowder cover. Are you kidding me? Well, I forgot about that. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's right. Cause I screen print. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah. I don't even know. I think I still have one. I can maybe send it to you if I have, if I have an extra, um, I don't yeah, want to steal was- your last copy, but if you do have an extra, I would love to hear it because, uh, work for food is one of the best pinhead gunpowder songs. Yeah. Oh, whoa. Yeah. So I think it was also like a, a thermals cover in there and maybe I think it, do? I'm cheating, but it says Cletus and Nirvana. Oh, Cletus and Nirvana. That's right. The, okay. The thermal thing were, was for something else. Yeah. I don't remember what Cletus song, but when I'm gone, like, when I'm gone. Whoa. Yeah. Cause they were like that old, like South Carolina punk band. Yeah. I was going to say like, you know, once again, you're moving from New Hampshire to South Carolina and what I'm, I shouldn't say because <laughs> I'm not from there, but like not really another punk hotbed. No, but at the time, at the time it, it was kind of starting to be like a DIY hotbed a little bit. Okay. Um, um, and kind of like the people who I had joined the band with were kind of like the ones kind of setting up the scene. They ended up being, being terrible people and I don't talk to them anymore. Um, and that's kind of why I moved out of there. But at the, like for a while it was like all of our friends bands from all over the country would come to tour, you know, Greenville, South Carolina, like who's ever played there before? <laughs> um, you know, and like people, like all of our friends were starting to kind of move there. And it was really weird. It was so cheap. Like I had a, a three-bedroom house, and the whole house was eight hundred dollars. Whoa! Um, I mean, it was we had like shows in our kitchen. It was like falling apart, but like, um, yeah. So yeah, I was there for like three years, and like we were just on tour a lot. Um, and yeah, sorry. No, no, no. Go on. I was going to say it seems like in the in the wreckage of that was like kind of the nineties punk explosion into the you know two thousands. Like we we're talking about the decline era until the decline yeah. era. It seems like in the wake of that, there was almost like this rebirth of DIY punk touring and like old style DIY punk tour circuits, you know, and I guess right. they never died out, but it just felt like there was like a lot more bands doing that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cause like, that's all I ever knew how to do too, you know, like, um, you know, was just like, you know, your friend in one city would help you out and you'd help them out in your city. It's like, you kind of just trade. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't we never really played any venue. It was mostly just like people's basements and living rooms and, you know, like, you know, practice spaces and warehouses or whatever. But, um, yeah, it's funny. Cause I feel like DIY touring is almost kind of fading out again now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like my, like my band just got a booking agent. Like we're not booking our own tours anymore. Like we're just doing like support tours. And then like all the houses in West Philly kind of stopped. Um, and there's just like one kind of DIY, spot which is a bar um yeah i was talking about this the other day with some people like i feel like people now like not that there's like necessarily like more money in music now than there was obviously not in the 90s because there was a ton of money then but i feel like people don't want to do the diy touring like thing anymore it's just like exhausting but i don't know i think it also like yeah you're like like i think it's it's not want to say easier to get discovered, but like you can kind of build up your following from home in yeah. a different kind of way now. Totally. And I guess the, also you're not 
uh, like, you know, maybe physical formats becoming less and less of a thing for a lot of people. It's harder to get that like gas money covered at the show. Unless I guess you still sell shirts, of course. And yeah. I still obviously sell some vinyl, but yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's changing. Also, like, you know, with like booking agents and stuff, you know, you have like your guarantee each night. You're not mm-hmm. just like hoping that like 10 people show up to your show you can, so you can make like 50 bucks or, you know, 100 bucks or whatever. Um, I think it's just like, I mean, obviously it's like not easy to get, you know, like, uh, it takes longer to like be able to like have a booking agent and all that stuff. But like, once you're there, it's like, it's more, it, it can be more money, but it's just funny how that's like, all, all like my DIY friends who were like, we booked our own, all our own tours for forever. Everyone like now is like kind of switching over if they can and are lucky enough, you know? Yeah. And I wonder if like also just the modern way we live and just how easy it is to kind of survey and to watch these things. If like DIY venues just have like a harder time remaining secret and remaining low key before everything gets shut down. Yeah. Like I think about gloss, like they were like, they just like put up their, you know, their demo or something on you know Bandcamp, and then like pitchfork got a hold of it and then like they became like the biggest punk band of what 2015 and 2016 oh, i would say like, arguably one of the biggest diy punk bands ever oh yeah yeah i yeah no i agree and like that was just like a freak thing that just happened mm-hmm. um it's just like the internet's changing all of that so much yeah what what band like you know going back to like the previous time when there was that kind of like you know diy resurgence like i know you know like what what band do you think did that like you know was it like against me kind of thing or like the i guess more like what what brought about the acoustic punk explosion around that time i guess and like the living room basement kind of show scene yeah i i, I would say or I would seth say before against me i guess sorry huh yeah maybe but but for me it was against me and for like i think a lot of my friends it was like against me that was the band that did that mm-hmm. um Cause they were on that label planet X that I was, that I was talking about like in the very, very early stages. Um, and yeah, I, I think for them it was that. And then also for them, it was the first band that like really, except for maybe green day, but like that sold out and people were like hated for a while, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> and that was like, so like the first for a few things. They were like, they were also a band that it seems like people got mad at them at every step step of the way. You know, like yeah. it was like they were mad. Oh, you went to No Idea from Planet X. Like fuck you. You went to right. to Fat from from uh, No Idea. Fuck you. You went to a major from Fat. Like it just like couldn't win with business decisions. But like you know, now that I'm, I can see why a band would make those decisions very yeah. clearly now. Yeah, we. So the last tour that that we went on, it was with with Lara and Adam from against me. And then also, uh, Benny from the gaslight anthem. Mm-hmm. And I remember Benny and I were talking one night and he was like, he was like, cause they, cause gaslight then signed to like Sony or Warner, one, one, some major label. And he was like, yeah, we learned from against me to never talk shit on major labels. Cause you just never know. Yeah. And like, that's exactly what happened with them. Like they also just got, you know, signed to a major and it was like, they didn't get as much shit. I think also because they weren't like a very political band, but also because they weren't like fuck major labels for a lot of their career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it's also like, like you're saying, like they, they were, they experienced it very differently. Their rise to success. They came out being a band that was, you know, like a rock band almost. Whereas, yeah. whereas against me was very much like a punk band. Right. With a very like political agenda, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And people like, 
And also, I think people like, you know, especially when you, when you're a band that means a lot to people, when you, when they know you as intensely as they do as like a DIY band, it's, it's hard for them to let go and to be yeah. like, this isn't my band. Totally. Just like I was, I just watched the Jawbreaker documentary, like maybe three nights ago. And they, they were saying the same thing. Like there's this one clip where like Blake is telling the crowd, like the rumors are not true. We did not sign to a major label. Like, fuck that. And then like a few days later they, they signed and like, and like Adam was like, you know, we're, we're humans and we changed our mind, you know, yeah. and then we just did it. You know, it's just like, you never know. Yeah, no, you never know. And, you, and it's also, it's just, it's also like, I, like, I don't want to say that I've been fucked over by every label because I haven't, but at the same time, like there are definitely situations with my band where, you know, like if we had had a contract, I think it would have been, you know, and then other times where we did have contracts and it was apparently a quote unquote, a friend situation. And then years later that contract, you know, screws you over. So I don't know, maybe like being on a super impersonal corporation would have made that stuff easier to swallow. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring up contract because that's like something that we're, you know, because we've never really done contracts, but mm -hmm. you know, we're having bands, uh, get hit up by bigger labels that want to buy their records from us. But we're like, we don't really have, like we like, don't really have legal ground for it because like, we don't really do contracts. But now I like, I'm like, I've always been so against them, but I'm like, I think we just have to start doing them because, and not only to like protect us, but also to like hold us accountable to our bands being like, this is what we promise you. If we're not gonna, if we don't like meet these standards that we set together, like, you know, now you can like come at us and be like, you promised this, but we're not getting it. Mm -hmm. So like it holds us accountable to the band as well as like protects us from like bigger labels, like, um, you know, being predatory on us and just like, uh, cause that's what happens. That's what's happening a lot now too. Is like, you know, major labels are becoming, uh, they're dying and like, you know, not necessarily like, get better is the label doing this, but like, you know, there's other bigger indie labels that are like, you know, putting out bands are getting huge. And like the major labels are all like, what's cool right now? I don't know. Let's see what this label is doing. Mm -hmm. So they try and like hit up all those bands. And like, you know, if you don't have a contract, then you're just like fucked. Yeah. No, I like, I look at, well, you know, getting back to gloss, like, you know, I totally respect the shit out of them for getting to that point where you, you have to start making compromises in a band and just deciding that they weren't the band that was ever going to have to make those compromises. Like, cause it's, it's hard. Like it, every step of the way, I think in growth in indie music is just, it, it requires like, you know, it requires uh painful decisions. Yeah. And it's funny cause with gloss, like, cause like, although, uh, apparently, so epitaph was like interested in them. Mm -hmm. Um, but then, so people got mad at gloss for, 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 for not, they so people would have gotten mad at them had they signed with Epitaph, but they also would have, they also were mad at them for not because yeah. they were like, you all were offered all this money and you didn't take it. You're just privileged people like who didn't need the money, like fuck you. But then if they had signed it, they would have just been like, fuck you for signing. The same oh, people yeah. would have probably been like, yeah. fuck you all for signing to Epitaph. So it's like, you can't win in a nope. situation like that. Like you're going to piss someone off. That's just like about growth. Like, you know. Yeah, it's hard to make those decisions. Well, and it's also, it's not something they, you know, like they weren't a careerist band. Like I think, right, totally. you know, I don't, I don't, and I don't know anyone in the band. Like I'm just I'm doing this as a 
you know, completely separated observer from the situation that they just fell in the situation where all the people were around them. All these people around them were just like, this band's awesome. And like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, right. like, what are you going to like? And I think, I think your labels in the exact same kind of situation. Like, I don't think, you know, once again, just observing it from the outside, like you've become a careerist or ever were a careerist label. It's just the career happened. Right. Right. Yeah, like I, I never would have thought when I was, you know, burning CDs and like putting stickers <laughs> on the CDs like 10 years ago that I would ever like put out like, you know, a real record that people cared about. You know, mm-hmm. I just like, of course, I like wanted that, but I was just like, never thought that that would happen. Was there any band that you kind of want to put out that you haven't had a chance to put out yet? Because you've put out like, you know, obviously Page 99 and, and like Anti-Flag and God Stomper and like, you know, other sort of like, I don't know, uh, like legacy band type things yeah so we're we're doing a tape for anti-schism soon oh also, whoa yeah we've been talking i've been talking to the, for, to kevin for like years about it just like i've dropped the ball on it and just forgotten about it so many times but um i really want to work with camp cope mm-hmm. they're a band i really want to work with from australia um i think you know something that we talked about like internally is like doing too many legacy bands isn't good because then you just turn into like the legacy label yeah. Um, and I, I want to be more current than that. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, obviously there's a time and place for all the legacy bands cause they're important for like who we are now. But, um, yeah, I think like putting like a, a boundary on how many you do is good, but other current bands I want to work with. Yeah. Camp Cope. Um, who else? We have like so much shit coming out that I'm just like, what else would I even want to put out right now? Um, they're they're probably my number one band that I want to work with right now is Camp Cope. Um, I think it's awesome that you, I think it's awesome that when you do the legacy bands, it's like it's the cassettes, you know. And I think the other thing that's cool yeah. is that it's a it's a label that's very much now, you know, and current with the stuff you're putting out. Like the bands you're putting out are very current bands, you know. And then you also have this other side thing of these tapes. Yeah, and like some like a a rule for lack of a better word that we kind of like established um when doing like you know more like legacy releases for like off cis white male bands mm-hmm. is like we're gonna make part of the release a benefit mm-hmm. um like the anti-flag was like a benefit um for like this local philly like like safe house that has like sex workers and like people that just like need a place to stay and like drug rehab and then also like a spot in like san francisco so like we're trying to like even though we're releasing a record that came out like 20 years ago, we're also going to try and make it about an issue that's happening now and like draw attention to like people that are doing cool stuff in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. And it just kind of, you know, it makes, it makes something that's passive into something that's active too, by doing that. Totally. Totally. Um, I, you know, like you got to get ready for tour, so I don't want to keep you too much longer, but uh, at some point else, you come and do another one at my house in person or in Philadelphia. Yeah, Totally. Awesome. I guess like just kind of going from there, like, you know, when you look back on that point in, after you moved to New Hampshire, and I guess that would have been like a definite low point for, you know, the musical side of your life Yeah. to now, like, what are your big takeaways? Like, what are the things, you know, that have changed to you? And, and like, do you think it's going in the right direction at this point? Yeah, I think moving to Philly was a huge thing. Um, I think that right now Philly has probably the best bands coming out of it in the, in the country. So I think like, because I live here, like I, I'm seeing a lot of the stuff first before mm-hmm. like other labels, other people are seeing it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and yeah, because it's a huge difference between like Philly and New Hampshire. Like there was like nothing come out of New Hampshire, and there's just, like too much. Like I can't keep up with all the stuff that's coming out of Philly. You know, like I would just like I just can't. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I've learned a lot from everywhere that I've lived. Like just like interacting with different people in different scenes, and how each scene is kind of like uh, just different and the, and the same. Really, like you know, every scene's the same in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've like loved like learning about it and like just like meeting all the new people from all the places and touring. Yeah. It feels like every scene is ultimately a microcosm for a larger society in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with all the goods and bads. Oh yes. Uh, well, Alex, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I apologize again for making it take this long to happen. Oh my God. It's totally fine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Alex, for coming on the show. And as you heard right there, we didn't have much time because Alex had to leave for tour. We didn't even, we didn't even get to talk about Control Top. So check out Control Top on tour, and Alex will be back for a part two at some point in the near future. And now, for speaking of the future, what's coming up next week? Now, next week, there's going to be something a little weird. Well, next, I guess. Not next week. It's going to be coming later on this week. I haven't recorded this yet, but but it's all set. It's all set in stone. <laughs> I really hate doing this before I record it, but coming back to the show, one of the great lost episodes of all time, Maddie Matheson is finally coming to Turned Out of Punk. He and I recorded a fantastic episode, and then I don't know what the hell happened. It didn't save, and it was it was lost. It was lost. And he is a very busy guy, as I'm sure all of you know from checking out social media and things like that and running around, but it's happening. It's finally happening ahead of Maddie's fest, Maddie fest, a festival, which has grown from very modest, humble beginnings in the basement of a restaurant that Maddie ran to where it's now, you know, got the Wu-Tang clan and the descendants playing and, and all sorts of other things happening. Uh, but Maddie is going to be coming to the show. A good friend of mine, someone that I've been hanging out with now for uh, God, Decades? I think we can kind of almost say decades. Getting there. Getting there. Anyway, that is next week on – or next episode on the show. This week. Not next week. This week on the show. Uh, that will be dropping ASAP. So that's that's it. I'll be speaking to you again real soon. Uh, thank you, everyone, for supporting this thing. Thank you to all the Patreons for their uh, tireless dedication and and allowing me to do this, too. The Patreon people. Shout out to the Patreons. And uh, that's it. I will see you next week. Thank you again to Alex. Go out there and make your own culture. Sign your organ donor cards. And I'll see you next episode. <laughs>